Hey everybody, this is Vegan Theology. I am Kevin Hale. And I'm Sarah Hale. Welcome back. Yeah, what's going on, Sarah? Oh, so far so good. It's a good day so far. Yeah. It's quite early in the morning, which, which we like. I think we're at our best in the morning, highest energy. So thank you for joining us again. What we have been doing this past episode, and, and this is our second one, this is a dive into Andrew Lindsay's writing, specifically his book, Animal Theology. And Kevin's also been reading another book by Andrew Lindsay. And Claire Lindsay. Um, called... Animal Theologians. Yeah, we want to find out what others who have gone before us, theologians who happen to care about the other species that we share this planet with and right. what our theology should be. Around that, we we think we could benefit a lot from from reading these things and discussing them. So thanks for joining us. This is chapter one, part two. I really would love to make the goal. I have the goal that we will only spend one episode on each chapter and be a little bit more concise, even though there's a ton to talk about. Right. But yeah, the the last episode was running a little long, and so we broke chapter one into two parts. Two episodes. So. Yeah, we'll see how it goes, though, because you're right. These yeah. books, these books are dense and they're full of amazing information. So, so yeah, we want to get through the rest of chapter one today. I was thinking, though, for me, one of the highlights of our last episode was when Kevin said there was something along the lines that someday. We won't have to call it animal theology, that it will just be theology. Right. And that was really inspiring to me. That was that was really beautiful. I appreciate that. It's funny because we're both reading these books, you know, we're come, trying to come up with our own theological framework, and now we're trying to bolster it with, I think we're both reading Lindsay for the first time, and we've read some David Clough, um, or is it Clough? I'm not sure how he pronounces his name, but... And others, uh, Norman Phelps, but I think what we really want to do is we want to build an amazing vegan animal theology framework. And so I'm reading Animal Theologians by Andrew Lindsay and Claire Lindsay, and I was just getting into it, and I made that comment, and then literally I get back to the book, and it's, by the way, Animal Theologians, both books are fantastic, but inspiring. I'm just so excited to read this book and I'm just getting into it. But I, I came across this quote and it's just so nice that our thinking, I feel like, is lining up. It's resonating. It's We're on the same wavelength with these massive theologians. And I mean, that just, I don't know, it makes me so happy. And it also makes me jealous because I want us to go study more deeply and I have to work for a living. And especially now my schedule is pretty, pretty booked. But Check this quote out uh, along the lines of what we were saying, and this is from the introduction to Animal Theologians under the, the subheading of Purpose of the Book. We like the line from William Temple that theology is still in its infancy, and this is probably nowhere truer than in the case of mainstream thinking about animals. As one of us has written elsewhere, animals can help liberate theology from its own anthropocentric ghetto and enable a fuller and more convincing theological perspective on fellow creatures. 
we look forward to the day when animal theology, as well as black theology, feminist theology, gay theology, and ecological theology are all unnecessary because religious communities have incorporated them into the theological mainstream. I think that's that's mm-hmm. that's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's such an amazing quote, and yeah. I love it. I feel like I that I'm really inspired by that because we both graduated from Bible college and we heard about liberation theology and we may have even read a little bit of it. You know, we heard about some of the other theologies, but it, yeah, it was definitely still a feeling that, well, this isn't really real theology. This isn't theology proper. This isn't... Not to be taken seriously. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, uh, it's like a trend or it's it's... Yeah, it has like this exclusivity about it, that attitude. When in fact, this view that is being proposed by the Lindsays is that those are valid and they, they've they been kept out. But is that legitimate? Is that honest? Is that right. even Christian? Yeah, and what they say in this book, and uh, one of the authors is talking about Albert Schweitzer's basically saying if your systematic moral theory does not if it's not comprehensive and it doesn't incorporate all of creation, then it's kind of, I wouldn't say invalid, but it's not a good system. We, we need, a, we need a, a systematic moral theory and a theology that includes everything, that includes humans and non-human animals and the earth. It has to incorporate everything. The, the whole creation is going to be redeemed, not just humans. And so our framework now needs to include everything. Mm-hmm. So it's an inspiring book. Yeah. I can't wait to read it and finish it. So excited about it. Yeah. I love that too. Yeah. It makes no sense that mainstream theology excludes certain humans or excludes certain other creatures. That that doesn't make any sense. All of it is God's and it all, everything should fall under the umbrella of our theology. Right. And I just love as, as, as long as, as what we've been at theology now for two millennia. And I love this William Temple <laughs> quote, theology is still in its infancy. And that's inspiring for us because that's what we're trying to do. Even with this podcast is like, we're trying to bridge that gap that so many of us can do. We can make our theology more holistic and more consistent if you just think about that right there, if you just tried to be consistent in your theology, it would change your life. And if you just took time and meditated on that, which is what I try to do as well, and just think about the, the whole of creation and think about being consistent with the whole of creation. If you really stop and think about it, it's really going to change your theology and affect your life in a big way. Cool. So last week we discussed... Uh, one, the first of three of the subcategories that Lindsay wanted to cover in the first chapter, which was number one, reverence. Do we owe the rest of creation, including non-human animals, do we owe them reverence? So we discussed that at some length in our last episode. The second and third categories are responsibility. Are we responsible for animals? Do we have responsibility towards animals? And the last one is rights. Do animals have rights? 
So we'll be covering responsibility and rights today. So starting with responsibility, Lindsay starts by discussing St. Thomas Aquinas, Mm -hmm. 13th century uh, philosopher, theologian, theologian, and the enormous influence that Thomas Aquinas continues to have, especially within the Catholic Church. Thomas talked about animals in what I would call quintessentially anthropocentric ways. The Catholic Church continues to deny any responsibility toward animals because St. Thomas Aquinas whose theology still dominates much Catholic thinking, not least about animals, told them that they don't need to have any responsibility right. towards animals. It is amazing how long his influence has lasted. It's centuries. Right. It's just crazy, really. Yeah, so he wrote, as many of you know, the Summa Theologica, uh, and he, in that he writes, When we hear it said, Thou shalt not kill... We do not take it as referring to trees, for they have no sense, nor to irrational animals, because they have no fellowship with us. Thomas Aquinas cites, guess who? Who does Thomas Aquinas draw from almost without question? Well, I think one of his biggest uh, influences was Aristotle. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something that Lindsay really shows in this chapter. He really reveals that Thomas Aquinas basically just adopted a lot of what Aristotle was saying. So Thomas Aquinas's views are very Hellenistic, not Hebrew. Mm. They are very they're Greek ideas when it comes including his views on animals. That right. it's a Greek framework. And then he just kind of sprinkles some scripture here and there on top of it, but right. it's it's not it's not like he went to the Bible to find or to develop his views on animals. He actually just adopted what Aristotle was saying. And, and just to emphasize that, we've talked about this in past podcasts, but the Greek thinking between the material world and, say, the non-material world, that they kind of saw the material world as worthless. I don't know if they use the word evil, but just worthless, and we're going to escape this this bondage we're into this material world, so to speak. Yeah. And that's kind of what influences our whole today's modern view of heaven. So we're going to escape from here. It really set the scene for the enlightenment, right? Like Descartes really built on this. He, right. he took this to the next level. I think, therefore I am. And he's, he was the same idea. Animals are not rational. They can't think like a human. Therefore they have no value. They're just mach- unthinking, right. unfeeling machines that we can cut open and do right. He did vivisection, do experiments um, on, and, and, and he even had what his 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 assistants in his lab, if they couldn't handle cutting into animals, he almost made fun of them. Yes, right. This is the this is the tradition that humans have been living with uh, for centuries. So Thomas Aquinas cites Aristotle as his defense: "Quote the natural order of things." End quote. There is no sin in using a thing for the purpose for which it is. Also, Augustine follows this reasoning as well. Quote, both their life and their death are subject to our use. 
I was thinking I was reading this. I don't know formal logic, logical fallacies, different mm. types of log- logical fallacies, but this felt like a logical fallacy to me. <laughs> like, okay, let's look around and let's see how we're treating animals or, or how things work in this world. Oh, okay, that must be the way it's supposed to be. Right. That must be God's will for animals. So since we use animals for everything we can get from them, that must be what God intended. Right. I mean, does that do you does that seem like kind of circular reasoning or or not great logic at least? Right. No, it does seem that way. But also, if you think about all of us, right? We we were indoctrinated as children into this. We've known. We've really not known anything else. Many of us. You know what I mean? This is just the way it is. You're right. It's pretty normal. We've normalized it so much that. We don't even think about it, right? No. We, we almost can't even examine our own culture. Yes. In Aquinas's view, animals are irrational, possessing no mind or reason. Animals exist to serve human ends by virtue of their nature and by divine providence. And animals have no moral status in themselves, save insofar as some human interest is involved, for example, as human property. So animals only have any status if they happen to be someone's property. Mm. So if you kill someone's oxen, I think it's, you know, he uses a passage from Exodus for, for defense of this. Like it, there is a penalty for killing someone's oxen, but that's not because you've done anything wrong in, in terms of the ox. It's, right. it's because it was, it was somebody's property. In this view, basically, it's impossible to wrong an animal. It's impossible to do anything immoral when it comes to animals because they have no right. We have no responsibility to them whatsoever. Aquinas said, The love of charity extends to none but God and our neighbor. And Lindsay says, But can animals be regarded as or at least analogous to human neighbors? No, claims Aquinas. The word neighbor cannot be extended to a rational creature since they have no fellowship with man in the rational life. And therefore, charity does not extend to irrational creatures. Hmm. Lindsay goes on to mention that Aquinas's position is reproduced in one Catholic textbook after another to this day. The Catholic Dictionary of Moral Theology, for example, argues that animal rights workers, so this is their criticism of animal rights workers, often lose sight of the end for which animals, irrational creatures, were created by God, the service and use of man. In fact, Catholic moral doctrine teaches that animals have no rights on the part of man. So if you are a Catholic student and you you look up in the Catholic Dictionary of Moral Theology about animals, you know, that is what is, that's what you're going to be taught as a Catholic. It's a very explicit teaching within the Catholic Church, I guess, to this day, hmm. that we should not be worried or concerned about any responsibility that we have to animals. There was a little-known... 18th century divine uh, named Humphrey Primitt that Lindsay brings up who did formally criticize and respond to Thomist thinking or Aquinas's writing. Right. Humphrey Primitt 
is the guy that Lindsay uses to challenge Thomas Aquinas on this view. Aquinas' doctrine has become the dominant Western religious position on animals since the 13th century, but one who dared challenge it was little-known 18th-century divine Humphrey Primet in his Dissertation on the Duty of Mercy and the Sin of Cruelty to Brute Animals, published in 1776. Primet sees creation as, quote, a transcript of the divine goodness, end quote. His starting point is that creation is fundamentally good. Every creature of God is good in its kind. Because animals can feel pain, according to Primit, to cause an animal pain is evil and unjust. So this is a very strong contradiction to Aquinas, who said it's impossible to do anything unjust to an animal. They don't have any rights. Uh, Aquinas believed that animals could not be wronged. This appeal to justice places animals within a widening circle of sympathy and justice. Primit writes, Now if amongst men the differences of their powers of the mind, of their complexion, stature, and accidents of fortune do not give any one man a right to abuse or insult any other man on account of these differences... For the same reason, a man can have no natural rights to abuse and torment a beast merely because a beast has not the mental powers of a man. Seems pretty evolved thinking. He's, yeah. he's kind of saying, so we, we can agree that no matter what a person is like, even if they uh, have compromised mental capacity or they're a different race than you or... No matter who they are, just because they're humans, they have rights. In in the same way, he says, just because a beast in your mind doesn't have the same mental capacity as you gives you no right to abuse them, cause them suffering or pain. The purpose of animals is not to serve the human species, but to glorify God. Again, I feel like this is something we don't talk about enough. And scripture backs us up. I can't wait to dive into all the scriptures that talk about creation praising God, including non-human animals. So Primit writes that the purpose of animals is not to serve the human species, but to glorify God. I mean, this is revolutionary thinking because, again, Aquinas is saying the only reason God made animals is to serve humans. Right. And I got to tell you, that just reminds me of of the quote I read earlier where it says animals can help liberate theology from its own anthropocentric ghetto. And I don't know, it really struck me when I read it. I was really moved by that. Wow, do we think about that? Yeah. Do we, even creation, do we go... And sit and cre- I know we 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 actually just watched a documentary on PBS about turkeys because Thanksgiving is coming up, and it was pretty moving. This this naturalist scientist, whatever he is, a biologist of sorts, Joe Hutto. It's a very interesting uh, documentary. If you ever want to watch it, um, we rented it. It's called uh, My Life as a Turkey. But anyway, I was just moved by him and how he really embraced being a turkey mother. These turkeys imprinted on him. And how much he learned from these turkeys. I mean, it's just, I mean, I could go on. I don't want to spend too much time talking about it. But it was it was really eye-opening how even the turkeys opened up the natural world to him. And mm-hmm. then when the turkeys grew and left, that, that, that window kind of closed. But I just it just struck me with this quote and what you're saying right now, like how much 
How much are we listening to creation? How much are we listening to animals? How much richer would our lives be? How much richer would our spirituality be? How much richer would our relationship to God be if we were in harmony with the rest of creation, if we were learning what they have to teach us, right? what creation has to teach us? Right. Actually, I think you just helped me understand why either Claire or Andrew Lindsay writes that we've been in an anthropocentric ghetto. Right. This ugly, diminished, narrow right. existence, just thinking God only cares about human souls. Right. <laughs> right. No, we're like trampling on creation and animals. And anyway, oh. good stuff. Right. It's, it is exciting. It is exciting. So the, again, the, the purpose of animals is not to serve the human species, but to glorify God. They have a justification for existence, which humans themselves have yet to earn. Let me just read this again. They have a justification for existence, which human them, humans themselves have yet to earn, and earn they may supremely through the exercise of mercy. So there's a lot in there, and the language is a little archaic, but basically that the way I'm reading it, the purpose of animals is to glorify God, and that's their justification for existence. And we... Our purpose is to glorify God, right? And we need to we need to do that, and the way we can do that is through exercising mercy, right? Right, and and just with that, we talked about this in one of our earlier episodes. That the purpose when we talked about, I think it was in the function, function, purpose, and order uh, episode. We just talked about their purpose and their function is to be animals, to live as animals, mm-hmm. and it's our job as caretakers and uh, viceroys uh, bearing the image of God to allow them to be who they are. Yeah, to cultivate a world in which they can fully be who they were created to be. Right. Yes, which we're doing the opposite of that, for sure, with animal agriculture and other ways we, we use animals. We may pretend, this is Primit again, we may pretend to what religion we please, but cruelty is atheism. We may make our boast of Christianity, but cruelty is infidelity. We may trust to our orthodoxy, but cruelty is the worst of heresies. Wow. You know, I grew up in a family of hunters and and fishermen. And sometimes there was a lot of joy and delight in cruelty to animals. That was like the brand of Christianity that I grew up within. And I think about, you know, it, it never sat well with me, but, you know, when it's your authorities and you're a child, you accept it basically on Mm. some level. But I love this. Cruelty is heretical. Cruelty is actually atheism. Cruelty right. is infidelity to God. Right. No, and, and I mean, that, you know, it just what it reminds me of, I think when we were doing our earliest podcasts on, for vegan theology, you know, somehow I came across the word miscreant. And so I decided to look up the etymology of it because I was thinking, oh, I wonder if it means like miscreation. Mm. But it wasn't. It was a different kind of word. It had a different root. But it said basically someone who maybe doesn't follow the law, and, and one of the one of the uh, synonyms was a heretic, 
I thought it was very interesting. But then it got me thinking about miscreating mm-hmm. and what our jobs are as Christians and as co-creators with God to create. And just this quote that you're talking about, this cruelty, we're not meant to be cruel. And being cruel, I, I love that quote by Primit. Basically, I mean, that's pretty strong language, right? <laughs> right. Heresy, atheism, um, if you're not... Infidelity. Infidelity. I mean, that, that doesn't get any stronger than that. Yeah, if you do have the view that humans were given the command at creation to be responsible caretakers of creation, to rule as God had already revealed they should rule through God's benevolence and and provision and love, if if that's what we were commanded to do, if that was the first commandment we got, um, and then we turn around and we're actually cruel to creation, yeah. You can you, you have to call it heresy. You have to call it infidelity. Yeah, and one of the other things I came across in this book, apparently in one of the apocryphal books, the book of Enoch, or one of the books of Enoch, I should find the, the reference, but essentially in that book, we need to read it because uh, I guess there's a section where animals get to judge humans for how humans treated them. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about this. I know. <laughs> so. And thank you, Lindsay's, for that. Got that from your book, Animal Theologians. Mm-hmm. So Lindsay sums up this portion of the chapter on responsibility to animals by saying Aquinas's major weakness is his views are derived from Hellenistic sources. Aristotle's axioms are taken over without question. Uh, again, which is since animals have no rational capacity, which of course we could debate if that's even true. They have no intellect, which again, that's obviously not true. Uh, and animals have no other purpose save that of serving human beings. Aquinas is quintessentially anthropocentric. These are Greek ideas. Lindsay points out that today's Old Testament scholars understand the word dominion to not mean despotism, but responsibility for. Yeah, yeah, and something you just said right there. It just again, I'm just getting into this book, Animal theologians, but one of the chapters is on C.S. Lewis, and it talks about his book, The Problem of Pain, and the author of that chapter, Michael J. Gilmore. I'm just going to read this. It says, it shows how Lewis's views are expounded on the wide canvas of his fictional works, which reject dominion as despotism and insist on human responsibility to animals. Humans' failure to care for creation is egregious. In the sight of God. Only an eschatologically renewed human species can provide the ultimate corrective to human depravity towards animals. Mm. I'm like, wow. Egregious to a God really is a powerful phrase. Well, and it got me thinking too when it says of Lewis's fictional works. If you think about, like, I mean, I've, I haven't read that many, I've only read The Line, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but just think about Aslan and you think about. The other animals in there, or you know the the fawn. the fawn, yeah, they were they were equals, and the fact that he represented Christ as a lion is pretty interesting. Mm. If it just starts to put things in perspective a little bit, mm. maybe to look at his fictional works a little differently. Yeah. So again, Lindsay trying to wrap up the the responsibility to animals section. He says that in Aquinas. Genesis is interpreted in terms of the Aristotelian pattern, which sees nature 
as a hierarchical system in which it is assumed, as with human society, that the male is superior to the female, the female is superior to the slave, and the slave is superior to the beast, and so on in declining intellectual order, the animals are as, quote, naturally subject to humans as slaves are to their masters. No wonder that Robin Atfield argues that the tradition which holds that in God's eyes, the non-human creation has no value except in its instrumental value for mankind has Greek rather than Hebrew sources. And he goes on to say, you know, again, the fact that this worldly way of seeing the world and then transposing, superimposing this world systems, this world's way of dividing up power and rights, superimposing that onto God, saying that, oh, that's how God intended it. Yeah. Is that could be called heretical too. Right. In my you know. Right. Um, and he and he just says God's providential care attested by scripture becomes telescoped into the continuing obsession with individual human soul cultivation at the expense of the rest of creation. And that, I would say, is an accurate description of at least the churches that I grew up in. All Everything is telescoped down into human soul cultivation, right. and no consideration is given to anything else that God created or anyone else that God created. Very little. Although Aquinas has had the far greater influence on Christian theology than Primit, who's basically unknown. Right. Lindsay does want to point out a historical note that the person responsible for putting out Primit's second edition was a man named Arthur Broom, who also was responsible for the foundation of the first national animal welfare society in the world, the SPCA, later known as the RSPCA in 1824. And they credited Primit as being a lot of their inspiration for starting a group of the first group in the whole world, or the, at least the Western world, to care about the welfare of animals and fight for some legal rights and legal protections for animals. So that was part of Primit's legacy. And then he goes on to say, unfortunately, part of Aquinas's legacy is that in the middle of the 19th century, Pope Pius IX forbade the opening of an animal protection office in Rome on the familiar Thomist principle that humans had duties to fellow humans, but none to animals. Mm. Which is just kind of surprising that the Pope felt the need but yeah, if you if you believe what Thomas Aquinas said as near gospel, if that's what forms your theology, I guess that's a consistent that choice is a consistent choice for the Pope to make. Well, you know, it also just gets me thinking, like yeah, why did the Pope feel it necessary to say anything? It may, it reminds me of the Shakespeare quote doth protestus too much or doth protest too much. Mm. Like what was happening mm. at that time? Yeah. Aquinas needed to make these strong statements that we don't, we can disregard animals. They don't, they don't feel anything. They're not worth anything. And why did the Pope get involved? 
right? Like, why did they feel the need to even say anything? Yeah. Yeah, well, like, well, like they had, they felt like they had to take a stand. Like, oh, th- yeah. things are getting crazy. Well, that you just kind of <laughs> wonder historically what was happening at yeah. the time. I don't know. I'm very curious. That is interesting. Obviously, I've been a Christian vegan now for years. I, this kind of thinking that it is unchristian, it's almost like they're saying it's unchristian to care about animals. Yeah. And so that your, your, your Christianity is questioned when you actually even suggest that we have responsibility to animals. Right, for sure. That is just so... Obviously, I've been steeping myself in a different theology as a vegan. This this way of thinking just feels so obviously. Just it feels well clearly that can't reflect God's character right. to say that we should not be responsible to animals. Right, and it's worth mentioning what Lindsay has said. God created these animals. He created the whole world. So His redemption should include all of creation. Yes. And finally, the last section of chapter one is on the subject of do animals have rights? Andrew Lindsay has already written, by this time that he's written this book, Animal Theology, he's already had at least two publications that were specifically in defense of animal rights. And I love the humility he displays as he writes about this because he, he basically tells a story that his first book on animal rights leaned heavily on using sentiency, animal sentiency, as justification for them having rights. Mm. His book was criticized by, obviously, many, many people, but one of the people who came out with a response in criticism of Lindsay was Richard Griffiths. Lindsay expresses gratitude for that, he says, because of, of Richard Griffith's criticism, it really challenged me to go much deeper in, in my analysis and my theology in defending the rights of animals. And so Richard Griffiths had some really good things to say, basically that even when we're talking about human rights, to come up with any framework that doesn't start with God as the source of rights Hmm. is incomplete and can be easily torn apart. So yeah, the idea that no matter what someone's intelligence, their mental capabilities are, or how sentient they are, those should not be the basis. Or even how, yeah, their abilities, right? right? These criteria should not be what we're basing or what we're defending their rights with. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so Richard Griffith says... Seems like a very utilitarian sort of, like, how can they help society? How can... Yeah, yeah. Like, they need to have some purpose for the greater good or something. They need to have recognizable, quantifiable... Verifiable. Yeah. Certifiable. No, I'm just kidding. In order for us to give them moral consideration. Right. And so, so yeah, Andrew Lindsay's like, I'm so thankful for this criticism because he's absolutely right. And so through that, Andrew Lindsay starts to develop what he calls a theocentric orientation. Mm. And he calls them theos rights. Nice. 
So I just wanted to give a little bit of what Griffith said. Griffith enumerates some of these positive elements. Quote, animals have intrinsic value to God. God delights and rejoices in differentiated creation. They are in God's gracious keeping. God feeds them. Even the sparrows and the Ninevite cattle are objects of concern. Animals praise their creator and reflect God's glory. And Griffiths goes on to critique uh, that animals were simply created for man alone. But I definitely resonate with that. I think Andrew Lindsay definitely resonated with that. And so, like I said, he came up with a whole new framework for why animals do have rights. So these theos rights, he says, we need a theocentric view of creation. And his tenets of these theos rights are, one, creation exists for God. Two, God is for creation. And three, this, quote, forness of God towards creation is dynamic, inspirational, and costly. And then four, if creation exists for God, and if God is for creation, how can human beings be other than for creation? Wow. Wow. So going back to number one, creation exists for God. Creation exists for its creator, Lindsay says. Years of anthropocentrism have almost completely obscured this simple but fundamental point. What follows from this is that animals should not be seen simply as means to human ends. The key to grasping this theology is the abandoning of the common but deeply erroneous view that animals exist in a wholly instrumental relationship to human beings. Even if humans are, are uniquely important in creation, it does not follow that everything in creation is made for us to be pleasing to, for us or that our pleasure is God's chief concern. We need to be wary of making absolute claims about God's chief concerns. Uh, he quotes James Gustafson, who says, the chief end of God may not be the salvation of man. Wow. <laughs> like God has, strong God has more going on than just redeeming humans. Wow. That, that guy better watch his back. I'm just kidding. So number two of this theocentric view is God is for creation. Lindsay writes, since God's nature is love, and since God loves creation, it follows that what is genuinely given and purposed by that love must acquire some right in relation to the creator. I do not see how God can be the kind of God as defined by Trinitarian doctrine who is morally indifferent to the creation which is sustained, reconciled, and which will in the end be redeemed. To posit that the creator can be indifferent to creatures especially those who are indwelt by the Spirit, is ultimately to posit a God indifferent to his or her own nature and being. So basically, again, God's character is love. How could God's character be indifference, right? Especially right. To indifferent to his own creatures. Well, I think it just reminds me of what we've said early on, that, that God's character is woven into his creation. And if you stop, and that just got me thinking about animals and how animals treat each other, how they treat their children, they are caring and loving. And so that's that. those ethics 
are built into them, right? Mm. So that's God's character in his creation. Mm. So anyway, it just got me thinking about that. The third point in this theocentric view is this foreness of God towards creation is dynamic, inspirational, and costly. It is dynamic because God's affirmation of creation is not a once-and-for-all event, but a continual affirmation. Otherwise, it would simply cease to be. It is inspirational because God's Spirit moves within creation, especially within those creatures that have the gift of a developed capacity to be. It is costly because God's love does not come cheap. Jürgen Moltmann writes movingly of how Christian theology is found not in the ascent of man to God, but the revelation of God in his self-emptying in the crucified Christ, which opens up God's sphere of life to the development of man in him. But if this same Christ is the Logos through whom all things come to be, how can we be justified in supposing that this self-emptying is for the human sphere alone? And he goes on. Clearly, there's a lot more to be said. and oh, you. Yeah. I encourage everyone to read the book themselves. But this foreness of God towards creation has all these elements, dynamic, inspirational, and costly. And then the fourth point he makes, if creation exists for God, and if God is for creation, how can human beings be anything other than for creation? And he says, you know, if, if you're worried that that this theocentric view of creation is somehow undervaluing humans he's saying well no if you think about it we're saying that it's only humans who have the special task within creation to do what other creatures cannot do at least in a consciously deliberate way namely to honor respect and rejoice in the creation in which god rejoices So, yes, we still have a very important, unique, central role, but it's not to be callous and cruel. It's to celebrate God's creation and and to order it. And he says, in short, if God is for them, we cannot be against them. Wow. (laughs) Which I like. That's awesome. So... To sum up chapter one, I just wanted to read one more quote from the end of the chapter. Lindsay says, according to Theos writes, what we do to animals is not simply a matter of taste or convenience or philanthropy. When we speak of animal rights, we conceptualize what is owed to animals as a matter of justice by virtue of their creator's right. Animals can be wronged because their creator can be wronged in his creation. Mm. It's all connected. What we do to the least of these, we do to God right. in a very real way. So, again, it's, it's very inspirational to read someone like Andrew Lindsay. And again, so this chapter is talking about that we should have a posture of reverence for all of creation because they are God's creation. Right. We should be responsible to all of creation because it is God's creation. And animals have rights because they are God's 
creation. Yeah. Very interesting. You know, again, I'm reading Animal Theologians, and I'm just getting into it. But based on our podcast, our conversation last week, I was very interested in Albert Schweitzer. So I kind of jumped to the Albert Schweitzer chapter. And just to begin, because you were talking about reverence, and it sounds like he's really... Andrew Lindsay and Claire Lindsay have done their due diligence, but I thought it was very interesting because again, you hear the word reverence and you know, you, you know, just with any word, you might think, Oh, I know what that means. But, and again, I'm just getting into it and unpacking it, but I thought this was very interesting. Two quotes here. If you desire peace in the world, do not pray that everyone share your beliefs, pray instead that all may be reverent. And that was by Paul Woodruff. And then another quote by Schweitzer himself only such thinking as establishes the sway of the mental attitude of reverence for life can bring to mankind perpetual peace. And so there's this sense of what, and this chapter is written by Carl Tobias Frain. The whole chapter is, it's about Albert Schweitzer, but it's called The Life of Reverence. And it seems like that was fundamental to Schweitzer's view. And it just got me thinking about reverence and these quotes. I mean, you want peace? You want a nice, peaceful world, a respectful world, start practicing reverence. Mm-hmm. I know I could I could learn from that quite a bit. Very profound. It is. It's life-changing. It's It could be world-changing. If everyone was taught from a young age that all of God's creation, all humans, all non-human animals, all of nature should be reverenced. Well, it's interesting, too, because I know, especially from the traditions that we come from, these very conservative, fundamentalist traditions, you know, there's this whole concept of only really worshiping God and having a reverence towards God and having respect towards God. But, but what again, you know, what if possibly that God was actually trying to demonstrate to us, like, hey, this is how you worship me, you, you, you show reverence to me. But I'm trying to show you, to demonstrate to you, this is also how you treat the rest of creation. And again, we've heard sermons on the Ten Commandments where the first few are are directed towards God and the the last few commandments are directed towards humans or or our fellow fellow creation, I guess. And again, I don't want to make it anthropocentric, but those are the sermons we've heard. God and then your neighbor. Love love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, what if the whole concept of worshiping God and showing reverence to God was just him trying to show us a practice of showing reverence to your fellow creation, your neighbor, exactly. your that's, animal neighbors. That's really important. I think that's really a new way to look at the greatest commandment. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. But you do that, you have completed the law. Right. And that's the essence here, right? And it's kind of what you're getting at, I think, too, is that and this is how I think about this. At the end of the day, in the eternal state, when we're all on the new earth and, the, and love rules the day, love, when, you, when you're loving your neighbor and you're loving God, you, there are no need for rules. Mm-hmm. We're not going to need a bunch of rules. Yeah. They're going to be completely unnecessary. So maybe we start practicing that now, right? <laughs> let's, let's do it. Let's try. <laughs> Practice more reverence yes. every day. Talking to myself. Hallelujah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Hey, thanks for joining us. This was episode 11 of Vegan Theology. We appreciate you listening. Yes, we do. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah.